it might be a bit of a, a, an unusual experience for some of us this afternoon to observe somebody being baptised, somebody being standing into, uh, stepping into a pool and actually being submerged in water and standing up in the 21st century might seem a bit of an unusual thing. Uh, and so I think it's worthwhile connecting ourselves and saying actually what we're about this afternoon is not something uh, new. But it's something which has happened continuously right the way through the past 2,000 years uh, since Jesus of Nazareth was on the earth. And the little uh, part of the Bible that we read, read a few minutes ago gives us an account of somebody who was baptized in those early days. So we're reading about a man uh, from Ethiopia So from Africa, he wasn't in the Middle East, he wasn't uh, around the Jerusalem area, Samaria area. He traveled there. He traveled to Jerusalem um, to worship in the temple. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? So he's got some sort of connection. He's got some sort of idea already with the idea of the worship of the God of the Bible according to the ancient Hebrew word. Uh, and the ancient Hebrew teaching, which is where the temple was founded. So he's traveled from Ethiopia, and he's, he f- we find him worshiping in the temple, and then he leaves. Uh, we read about sign- description of him. He's a very important man. Uh, he's uh, of the court of Candace, which means that he was, uh, or Kandakai, Uh, which means that he was um, a very senior kind of treasury exchequer, uh, and he was also a eunuch, which was not unusual in the ancient world for somebody, for a man to make the decision to become a eunuch uh, as a way of progressing their career, as a way, a political uh, requirement, uh, if you kind kind of like a relational requirement. We find this man... He's probably made that decision in, a, in order to further his career. He's decided to become a eunuch. Uh, go and read it on Wikipedia. You can find out a little bit more about what it is to be a eunuch in the ancient world. But he's basically made that decision. Now, the interesting thing is, when we understand what he's uh, decided to do, um, we find that he's gone back to Jerusalem. And, and interestingly, he wouldn't have been able to fully worship. He's gone to the temple. But he wouldn't have been able to fully enter into the worship of the God of the Bible for two reasons. Firstly, because he wasn't a Jew. And secondly, because he wasn't, uh, because he was a eunuch. And and there were ancient kind of restrictions to that. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? I think this man just speaks so powerfully, really, about our own experiences uh, in this world. He's searching, isn't he? He's a man who is looking for something more than just uh, the mundane events of life. Um, Some of us are still on the the idea that everything is going to be satisfied if we just earn X or if we just buy Y or if we just manage to travel to Z. Uh, those, Those kind of material things. Uh, But, you know, I think increasingly in in our 21st century Western world, there are more and more people who are finding themselves dissatisfied with that, realizing actually that when I I do get to that, there's always just another little bit more that 
I want. There's another extra that I want to chase after. We never feel satisfied. And increasingly, I find that there are people who are saying, there's got to be more. There's got to be more than the material. There is this spiritual dimension. And here's this man from Africa, from Ethiopia, who has made the trip back and is interested and is engaging and is seeking to worship the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. He is a man who is searching. I don't, one of the great things about afternoons like this is we've got lots of people who are visiting and um, I, I don't know where all of you are in terms of your own thinking, but I'm guessing that probably some of us are, are on, in that very, either at the very beginning or on that journey of searching. We know that there is something that we're looking for uh, and we just haven't found it yet. Um, in the words of the U2 song, I just still haven't found what I'm looking for. There is something deep down that we find dissatisfying. What is it? Here's this man who is searching. He's also a man who is educated. We find that he's traveling back to Ethiopia and he's reading a scroll. Now that's significant. It's significant in two ways. Firstly, because he's reading it which shows that he has a certain uh, status, but secondly, that he's got one. He's got a scroll. That, that's a remarkable thing. Um, many of us, uh, most of us, if of a certain age, I guess, probably, when you were in school, you were given a little uh, either New Testament or a New Testament and Psalms, uh, and you carried it away, a uh, little red leatherette kind of thing, a little Gideon's Bible. Uh, we are so amazingly privileged to have the Bible so available to us. But of course, in the ancient world, pre the printing press, in the ancient world, to actually possess a written copy of anything from the Scriptures was an incredibly precious thing. And it was also a very expensive thing. So here's this man who's made a decision in his searching that he is looking for and is willing to commit resource to finding out more. And he's reading from the Bible. Uh, And he's he's reading from the Old Testament. He's actually reading from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of those Old Testament prophets. And a prophet speaks into the situation and also speaks about the situation to come. Two ways in which a a prophet speaks. Uh, And the, the The passage that he's reading, we can see that in verse 32. The passage the eunuch was reading was, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? He's reading this, and as he's reading it, I guess he's pondering, thinking, "What, what does that mean? Now, the interesting, in fact, it's more than interesting, it's amazing, it's incredible, is that completely disconnected in human terms from this Ethiopian eunuch in his carriage, we find Philip, who is a believer in Jesus and one of the uh, original teachers of the church, walking along this desert road. Now, it's interesting because Philip has previously been 
in, a, in Samaria, in one of the cities in Samaria. And to be honest, the, the, the newly establishing church is just exploding. Um, we've been here, we're not exploding as a church. We're just not exploding as a church, not the way the early church did. We're just so delighted that over these past few years we've grown. That's a wonderful thing to see people come into faith in Jesus. But at the same time, um, we're not exploding. Philip was experiencing just a church exploding. People coming along, people finding out. This is in the first months after Jesus has been uh, crucified in Jerusalem, has been buried, has risen again, and has returned to heaven. Uh, and as people are hearing about this and understanding this, in that early part, uh, we find that there is a great interest and a great opposition to it. Those two things go hand in hand. Uh, and during that opposition, people get spread out all over the place. The church is exploding, and he's, he's, he's taken by God. God says, leave this place of amazing blessing and walk along a desert road where there's just nobody. That seems the most bizarre thing to do, doesn't it? But God has got a plan. He's got a plan for Philip, and he's got a plan for this Ethiopian eunuch who's in his carriage. Because as Philip is walking along this carriage, uh, alongside the carriage, he hears the Ethiopian eunuch reading. Very common in the ancient world uh, to read out loud. Uh, just it was normal practice, and he was reading it. And uh, Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can, I, how can I possibly understand what I'm reading unless somebody explains it to me? So this uh, disheveled peasant preacher who's probably um, not particularly, you know, showers were not a regular thing uh, in the ancient world, just wandering along the desert road, gets up into this carriage of one of the great rulers of Ethiopia. That must have looked just totally incongruous, mustn't it? The idea of this, this peasant preacher getting up into this carriage as, as this uh, Ethiopian chancellor says to him, come up and explain it to me. He obviously wasn't riding the chariot by himself. He was surrounded by his entourage. I wonder what they thought as they looked on and saw this this peasant getting up into the carriage uh, and being invited to come and to explain what he was reading. It must have been mind-blowing. Some of those people who were in the entourage probably had to make an appointment even to speak to this eunuch. He was such an important person, and yet he's invited up to explain. He says, what is this all about? And Philip amazingly, in verse 35, we read this. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Now that little verse, few words, is probably one of the most significant little sentences in the whole of this story. Because what it's telling us is this that what the Ethiopian eunuch was reading, which had been written 700 and odd years earlier by the prophet Isaiah, was actually all about Jesus, who had been crucified just a short period of time earlier. And to be honest, 
he would have been the talk of the region. Everybody would have known and heard about this Jesus of Nazareth. At this point, he's gone, he's finished, he's done and dusted as far as the majority of people are concerned. But there is this emerging group of people who are saying, actually, we now understand what the whole of the message of Jesus was all about. It was about this scripture. It was about this that was written by Isaiah hundreds of years ago. It was about a lamb, a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was the one that is being talked about 700 years ago, this Jesus. We haven't got, really got the time this afternoon, but the fact that Jesus is described as a sheep is one of the most significant things. In the ancient Jewish uh, faith, uh, the sacrifice of um, sheep was one of those marks of being forgiven by God. God makes it clear, that, and, and I'm glad about this, in fact, at the end of a week like this, when we see something like MH17 go off in this world, I am glad that sin and uh, rebellion against God is a serious thing to God. I am glad about that. I'm glad that people are not going to get away scot-free with things that in human terms they appear to get away with. That is a good thing in my view, that there is actually a God who is going to call to account and to hold responsible those atrocities in this world. That is justice. And God makes it really clear in picture form that justice is what his message is all about. This justice has been going on for centuries in the Jewish community as they've represented the fact that sin results in the shedding of blood by sacrificing animals. And now Jesus comes along and says, all of that stops. All of that stops because I am the sacrifice. I am the sheep, is what he's saying. I am the one who dies. Now that is just bizarre, isn't it? Why would Jesus die? Why would he be the one who dies? Well, alongside God's justice, we also have another amazing character trait of God, which is his mercy. That God is both a just God and he is also a merciful God. How can, how can you hold those two things together? How can, we can't do both. We can't be just and merciful at the same time. It's impossible. In our relationships with each other, we can't do them both fully. Not fully, but God can. And this is how he does it. He says that to rebel against me is worthy of death. That's justice. But at the same time, I will step in. Jesus will step in. The Son of God will step in and will be the sacrifice instead of those who deserve it, who trust and believe in him. That, that's the, it's so simple, the message of the Bible in one sense. One of the things that I think we've done over the past 2,000 years is we've made it in incredibly complicated. It's really very, very simple. 
in one sense. I love that it's also very, very deep as well, and we can never fully kind of work out all of the implications and all of the glory and the, the amazing dimensions of the message of the Bible. But in simple terms, it's this, that God says, for those who trust in Jesus, he will be sacrificed so you don't have to be sacrificed. So this searching man, he is this. And he moves from a man who is searching to a man who is now believing. And he says, I now recognize that what it is that I've been searching for is the peace that comes from knowing that I am forgiven. The peace that comes from knowing that my broken relationship with God is reconciled. That's the peace that God brings. And he says, I now believe that. I actually believe that Jesus is that Son of God who came into the world. Now, the, the other aspect of this, of course, is if, if it ended there, if Jesus was just the sacrifice and that was it, then, then he, wouldn't, he wouldn't give us any hope, would he? Really, he'd just be a sacrifice and that's it. How does that affect us? How does it really impact on us? So Jesus forgives us, but then we die. Is that the way it works? Well, no, actually. Because the next bit of the life of Jesus is that he is sacrificed, he does die, but then he rises again. He lives again. How many of us instinctively know that life is precious? We know it, don't we? Life is incredibly precious. We want to live. There's times, granted, as we get older, when we see the kind of world that we live in, when we sometimes think, do you know what? I don't want to hang around here anymore, but we've got a kind of a conflict running in our minds. I want to live, but at the same time, this world is just such a terrible place. But imagine if the world was not like that. Imagine if the world was as God first intended. Then I would want to live. And the fact that Jesus lives says, for those who trust in him, you will live as well. So this man who was searching becomes a man who believes in Jesus. That's what our friends who are going to be baptized this afternoon are saying. I, that's what's happened to me. I don't now know about Jesus. I know Jesus. That's the difference. I can know about the idea of the message. I can know how it might all work in the way that the Bible explains it. But until I believe, until I trust it and say, that is for me, then I'm just an observer. And this man has moved from being an observer and a searcher to being a believer. The next thing is, he turned, and I mean, Philip is amazing, it seems to me, because in a relatively short conversation, he's taken this Ethiopian eunuch from uh, the book of Isaiah, he's explained the whole of the process of the prophets, he's explained who Jesus is, and he's also explained what it means to be baptized. It's amazing what he does in a relatively short space of time. And, he, and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch says to him, well, we read in verse 36, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Nothing. So, the, the, verse 38 is the next amazing thing. 
He gave orders to stop the chariot. (laughs) Just for a minute, just for a minute, put a pair of Ethiopian sandals on and walk alongside that chariot as one of the entourage. Imagine what it must have been like. You know, you're trudging along. You know that you've got a long journey. Then all of a sudden, from the most important carriage, partway down the the row of carriages, uh, comes this shout, stop. And and everything stops because the voice that has said stop (laughs) means stop. And then the Ethiopian eunuch, your, your big boss, not, probably not your first boss, but the boss of the boss, you know, somebody maybe two layers up in the hierarchy of this little entourage, gets out of the carriage and walks down into some grubby water with this peasant preacher that a few minutes ago you saw getting on his carriage. And then while, while you're watching... The peasant preacher takes the boss down into the water and he lowers him down into the water and lifts him up. That's what we're going to be doing later on. He lowers him down into the water and he lifts him up. And you're thinking, what is going on here? This is bonkers. This is completely nuts. He gets up. He's, this is really nice clean water. And it's also warm which is better than I've had in the past. He'd have got up, he'd have probably been muddy, he'd have been stinky, uh, and he'd have wandered back into his chariot, and he'd have got changed, and you'd have carried on to Ethiopia. What would you have done? I'm pretty sure that what you would have done is you'd have wanted to find out what was that all about. What was going on? Why did he do that? That was the most weird thing I've ever seen in my life. He's just made himself incredibly humble in front of all of us. Why has he done it? Well, actually, the reason that he's done it is because Peter has explained to him what baptism is. And I'll just do that just in these few minutes as we close. Uh, Sorry, Philip has explained to him what baptism it is. He's, he's explained to him like this. He said, you know the fact that Jesus has become the one that has died instead of you. Do you believe that? Yeah. I believe that that's for me. Well, when Jesus returned to heaven, he gave a message to those who were his followers and he said this, go and into all of the world and make disciples And baptize them. Immerse them. That's what baptize means. Immerse them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, says the eunuch? What it means is this. As a way of, quite simply, declaring that you believe that, we go down into the water and you go in to the water in your old state. That's a picture you go into the water in your old state and you stand in the water as, as a picture of somebody who doesn't believe in a way. As somebody who is guilty before God. And then you die in the water. And you go down and you are buried in the water. And then you rise again out of the water 
which is exactly the picture that Jesus, of Jesus in his grave. That's what baptism is all about. It's saying what he did is what I am. I am that. I am in him now. I am baptized into him. And Philip says, do you believe that? And the eunuch says, I believe that. Here's some water. Let's do it. Because what I want to do is make sure that everybody who's with me knows that that's who I now am. And it's going to look weird and it's going to look strange and the news of what it is is going to permeate over the rest of the journey. But by the time we get to Ethiopia, all of them will know that what I am is a believer in Jesus who believes that I've died, I've been buried and I've risen again in him. That's what baptism is. As our two friends are going to be baptized in a few minutes, that's what they're doing. They're making that statement to you and to me. One of the great things about that is this. You don't have to be a particular race. You don't have to be a particular intellectual capability. You don't need to be able to see or to speak or to hear. Because what we do is we act out who I am. It is the most simple of statements. It carries breadth. It allows for literally anybody, anybody, to take part in saying, that's who I am. It is the most leveling. It is the most glorious thing. It is the most amazing declaration. In a sense, our friends this afternoon are being baptized into a tradition which has kings and queens and peasants and rulers and ordinary people and business people and sports people and house husbands and housewives and and just the whole breadth of human experience is declared in this activity across the generations that says, that's who I am. That's what I believe.